0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Psalm
1: 147. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Skipping down. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Pray with me. Father, it is true that you do not care remotely about the strength of your creatures. You use us, sure, but you're not impressed. You send out your word. You cause it to run swiftly. You send it forth and it overrules nature. It brings down all opposition. You have declared your rules and your statutes to your people. Praise the Lord. You have done that. And so I ask you, Lord, this morning, would you do it again? Not in my strength, you're not impressed. Not in our wisdom as we listen, you're not impressed. By your Spirit, Lord, send forth your commands, your statutes, your scriptures, and make them run. Run through your people. Run out into the world and bring in your people. Change them, Lord, you do that. I pray this morning in particular father would you cause us in our hearts to be turned towards you in your word to grow in a disposition of truth-seeking to develop that kind of an attitude that says I want to know what you say I want to know what is true from you from your word over and against all that I value, Lord, tell me the truth. Send your scriptures to me. Cause them to run through my heart. Lord, build that in your people one by one and as a group this morning, I pray. Use this time towards that end. Would Christ be lifted up in days and weeks to come as a result of it? as your people to love your word, we pray, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. Towards the end of World War II in Europe, the Western allies began to come upon some of the concentration camps within, much, within which much of the Holocaust had been perpetrated. There had always been some stories and rumors circulating about some of these things that were going on, but nobody had truly grasped the scale, the magnitude of the facts, until the armies began to come upon some of the death camps. They became known. But the facts were so alarming, so difficult to comprehend, that reportedly General Eisenhower, the supreme allied commander at the time, said, almost prophetically, that people would come to doubt the facts unless care was taken to preserve them. So care was taken. Documents were preserved. Film crews were brought in and footage was shot. Eisenhower himself even posed in some photographs in some camps so as to lend his personal credibility to the issue. I, as a supreme commander, and one day the president of the United States, I'm standing right here, I saw it with my own eyes, it happened, it's true. You know what the remarkable thing is? Some people still don't believe it. I've personally met numerous people. We've heard about it in the news recently, the president of Iran denying that the Holocaust happened. We, we see that. It's the case. This happened less than 70 years ago in Europe in the modern age, recorded in, in written documents, film footage, photographs, testified to by numerous world leaders at the time and many people who are still alive even today, though some have fallen asleep. Many people who are still alive can tell you what they saw. And yet I've stood face to face with people who, with a straight face and with rational argument, will explain it away. It's remarkable. And my point here is not to talk about the Holocaust. I'm actually not going to talk about the Holocaust at all. I'm simply using that as an illustration to point out something about human nature. We people, we human beings, are not mere fact-crunching machines. We're not computers that if you enter in a certain bit of data in a certain way, out the other side will come a particular conclusion. Entered in, this comes out. Entered into this computer, same thing comes out. We don't work like that not even on the really big, really obvious, crystal clear cases like the evil that was the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. We don't work like that. We don't just process facts because before the facts, the evidence comes, there's a receiver of the evidence, the human heart, the mind, the will... Different words describing the same thing. Us on the inside that is receiving something from the outside. And before the evidence even arrives, what's going on in here is critical. Put simply, if you do not want to be persuaded about something, you won't be. No matter how much evidence there is. That kind of thing, in relation to the receiving of the evidence of the scriptures pointing to Christ. that kind of problem is what's brought up today in Acts chapter 17. That's what we're going to look at today. We've been following the Apostle Paul and his team as they traveled through what was modern Turkey and then what is modern Turkey and then into northern Greece. In the last couple of weeks, we've been with them in the city of Philippi. And we saw there in Philippi as the apostles ministered that God was at work. God was lifting up Christ and drawing people to Jesus from across a whole variety of backgrounds, across all kinds of different lines. He was bringing people to Christ, delivering them from suffering, overcoming physical limitations and demonic opposition even, saving people, planting building a church. It was a marvelous thing. But not everybody in Philippi was happy with that. There's a lot of opposition to it, in fact. And even though that opposition was tamed when the authorities realized that they'd actually broken the law in how they dealt with these guys, so their their opposition was somewhat tempered, even still, there there still wasn't a lot of uh, popularity in the authorities' ranks for Paul, and so he wasn't welcome there, and eventually left and moved westward into Acts chapter 17. That's where we pick it up today. I'm going to read chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Follow along with me as I read if you'd like. seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest they let them go. And the brothers immediately But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. They'd been in Philippi, and they left there and traveled maybe about 75 miles to the west, just passing through a couple of little towns that were named there because Paul's goal was to get to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the largest city, it was the capital of Macedonia, it was a commercial center, an urban center that could influence all the little places around, just the kind of place for a church to be. Cosmopolitan, influential, and Paul wants to go there to plant a church. And he does, and because it's a sizable place with a synagogue, he, as usual, goes to the synagogue and begins to reason with them there for a several weeks. He gets a chance to share the gospel. As we look at how Luke tells the story here, you read verses 2 to 9 of the whole bit that we have about Thessalonica. You look how Luke tells the story, and you begin to see the main emphasis of this passage rising out. You could compare this to First and Second Thessalonians, the letters written to this church shortly after Paul left. And you could compare it to Philippians as well that mentions Thessalonica. And you begin to see a, a little bit larger picture about what was going on in Thessalonica. Paul was here probably for months, not just three weeks. Thessalonians tell us how Paul worked. He labored here, not just as a minister, but he seemed to have taken a job perhaps as a tent maker. He worked to support himself and the team. Philippians tells us how that that church in Philippi sent gifts repeatedly to him to sustain them. He's not just stopping here for a couple weeks. He's setting up camp here for a while. Furthermore, you read in, in Thessalonians that the large part of the church was from an idolatrous Gentile background, not Jewish, not even the Gentiles who would have come around the synagogue and been worshiping the one God of the Bible. They were from idolatrous backgrounds, but they're not even mentioned here. In Luke's account, why not? Because Luke doesn't want to talk about the whole story. He's got a particular focus in mind. He's talking about a contrast between the Jewish people in Thessalonica and the Jewish people in Berea, particularly over how they handle the Word. That's the point of this section. You can see it in some of the language that he uses to describe Paul's conversation in the synagogue there. The verbs he piles up. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and proving, like the NAS says, giving evidence. Literally, it means to set out some evidence right there on the table for everybody to look at. He's working through the Bible in detail, opening it up, saying, look at this, look at this, look at this, let's talk about that. Here's the evidence for this here. He's building a case with them over some extended time, over a long conversation, arguing something with them. I don't mean argumentatively. I mean developing an argument. There's reasoning going on here. What's he arguing? That it was necessary. That's divine necessity. That it was necessary according to the plan of God that the Christ suffer and rise again from the dead. That's the focus of his argument, which, if you remember several months back when we began this whole series... We began at the very end of Luke. Jesus says the very same thing. Back in Luke 24, Jesus is about to depart. He says, talking to his disciples, everything written about me in the scripture, referring to the Old Testament, the same book that Paul's using, everything written about me must come, divine necessity, must come true, must be fulfilled, that the Christ would suffer and rise again on the third day. Jesus is saying, Paul is saying here, arguing it very closely, the Bible's message is that Messiah would die and rise. That's the point. And some were persuaded. Not most, some. And a great many Gentiles also believed. The Gentiles are really mentioned here purely as a way of explaining how it all fell apart eventually in Thessalonica. The Jews who were not persuaded become very jealous that so many Gentiles were. So many of the Gentiles that they've been trying to draw to the synagogue, trying to persuade to become Jews, they're frustrated, angry, jealous that Paul has basically given them an end run. You can come to the Messiah of Israel and receive all the promises without obeying Moses, without being circumcised, apart from the synagogue. They're angry about that. They don't like it, so they form a mob. You can read about all the details. They form a mob. They accuse them of basically treason, trying to overthrow Caesar. Little phrase there about these men who have turned the world upside down, they're not referring to the gospel ministry changing the world. We sometimes think of it like that. They're referring to treason. We have an order here, Caesar rules, and these guys are trying to overthrow that. They've done it other places. They probably think they're involved in some of the other revolts going on in the world. They're trying to proclaim another king. The authorities hear that, of course, react to it. And eventually they chase them out. And Paul then goes to Berea and does the very same thing. And here you see again the the main point, the contrasting point rising out here. Notice the contrast of verse 11. Now the Bereans, they were different. Both Jews, both in the synagogue, But the Bereans, they were different. They were more noble, not meaning that they were high-born, that they were like royalty or something of of an upper class culturally. They were more noble, the verse continues, in that when Paul preached to them, they listened. And they went to the Scriptures daily, constantly, closely, eagerly, examining. He's arguing this, let me see that. Is it or isn't it? He's arguing this, let's see. Is it or isn't it? That's their attitude. Knows in the book, what does it say? I want to know the truth. Different than the Thessalonians. And a different result. Verse 12. Look at the therefore in verse 12. And therefore many believed. Different approach, different result. Therefore, some believed in Thessalonica, many believed in Berea, and a bunch of Gentiles too. Lots of Gentiles, in fact. Contrasting point. Same pattern of behavior, different approach to it, different results. And we have one, little underline, one more little underlining. When the Thessalonians heard that the Word of God was preached... They come and disrupt that. The Thessalonians don't want the word of God preached. Luke's underlining there one more time what their attitude towards the scriptures is. You might expect him to say, we don't want Jesus preached. Luke makes clear their opposition is actually to the scriptures. They come and chase him out of Berea as well. And that ends the ministry in Macedonia. L- later, we'll see that they move down to Athens. We'll pick up there next week with his ministry in that very different, again, large cosmopolitan city. This is the end of the ministry in Macedonia, and there are churches planted here that thrive. Again, you read the letters. Amidst much persecution, they thrive, rooted in the Scriptures, in close attention to the truth of the written word. They thrive. So we're going to stop this morning. Some important similarities and some contrasts in these two stories. So said the main point is centered around the scriptures and how people respond to it differently. Let me put it in a sentence for us to consider here. Main point this morning, God has spoken. We must humbly eagerly examine his word. God has spoken. God does something. God has initiated. God speaks. In the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, the only Scriptures there are, God has spoken, but we have to receive that. We have to be the kind of people who humbly, eagerly examine what He has said. Two halves of that statement. What God has done and what we must be like. Is the two points that I'm going to elaborate on here now. God has spoken. We must humbly, eagerly examine His Word. First point's about what God did. God's speaking. First observation it's obvious, I think. God has revealed His saving plan in His scriptures. God has revealed it, He's made it known in the Bible, not elsewhere. Wouldn't be known anywhere else but apart from his written word. God has revealed his saving plan. It is a work of grace, but by grace he's revealed it. We wouldn't know it otherwise. This is what Paul's laboring so thoroughly to prove, to show. Reasoning, pulling out evidence, working through the text trying to show something that God always had planned that the Messiah would come and rather than being accepted and coming to reign and, and like, triumph, he would be rejected and crucified. Paul's trying to show that that's the plan. Working through that, we don't know exactly which text he referenced. There probably were a whole bunch. It seems that he was both monologue talking about the Bible and dialogue discussing the Bible. Reasoning with them. I can only presume that he talked about verses that have already been mentioned in the Bible, in the book of Acts, I mean. I presume that he mentioned something that he mentioned earlier Deuteronomy 21, 1500 years ago, from the pen of Moses. Cursed is any man hung on a tree. 1,500 years ago, God told the people, the curse of God rests on dead men hung on trees. 1,500 years ago. And 600 years ago, from the pen of Isaiah, chapter 52, the servant, talking about this great messianic servant, lifted up high, exalted, marred beyond all human semblance, But in that marring is the sprinkling that cleanses. Or 53, bruised for our transgressions. The suffering servant. Despised, rejected, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. A man cursed and hung on a tree. Crushed by God to wipe away sin. Psalm 16, a thousand years before. The pen of David. But the anointed one would not see decay. God would not abandon him to the grave but would bring him out again alive. Maybe he used those passages. Maybe he used any number. It's all over the place. The cursing of God on dead people hung on trees. The crushing of the Messiah pierced for our transgressions. The coming back of the Messiah from the dead before he sees decay. It's everywhere. In specific verses and in big themes you could elaborate on those as well. Grand themes like the whole sacrificial system. The tabernacle from Leviticus. The Passover lamb of Exodus. The shepherd of Isaiah. The needed king of judges. The perpetual reign of David in Samuel. The wisdom from Proverbs. Themes shot all through the Old Testament pointing out something. God's plan to save. To send one to earth. God's plan to save, to come and take on the flesh of his creatures. To come to earth. God says, I myself will shepherd them in Ezekiel. How? I'll stand between them and the greatest danger they face. What's that? Sin. Sin. How will he stand between his people and the greatest danger they face? By taking the curse for them on the tree, pierced for our transgressions. It's everywhere. Paul's making that case from the written Bible long before Jesus, and then he comes and says, and this Jesus I've been proclaiming to you, he's that one. Look at him. Look at his lineage descended from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, he's Davidic. Born in Bethlehem, as the scriptures said. Look at his nature, his character. Full of compassion towards the lost sheep of Israel. And full of righteousness. Look at him deal with evil. Full of power. Look at his kingly authority. He rules over nature and over demons, and yet look at his humility. A prince of peace, even when persecuted, submitting himself to death at the hands of people, though he conquered waves and demons. Jesus is the one. And then the tomb was empty, just like he said it would be. There's the evidence. Jesus is the one. God was telling us thousands of years before what it would be like, and then he did it. Now what's the point in reviewing all that? Well, initially, I hope that it grabs you and you say, praise the Lord for what he's done. But additionally, I'm working on the point that God has revealed something to us. Let me explain why this is important in this story. I knew somebody once who was a, a returned missionary. He's a former missionary. He'd been in, living in Japan for 10 years. And he was now teaching, back in the United States here, teaching about apologetics, which is basically how to explain evidence that proves the truth of Christianity. He was teaching that kind of class, and he told this story about an encounter his wife had had in Japan. So they're there as missionaries in Japan, and his wife is meeting with a woman there, and she thinks that that's the day I'm going to now, I know this woman a little bit, I'm going to bring up the subject of Christianity with her. I'm going to share with her the gospel. But before she can do that, this woman says to her, I have something I want to tell you. I just became—I think it was a Buddhist. Really? Why? Well, she said, I was—I have was talking to somebody about it, and she was explaining to me how good it feels and how satisfying it is to your heart. It gives you peace and puts you at rest in the world. And I thought, that sounds really attractive. I would like that. And so I I became one. And it's true. It's so amazing and wonderful and calming and peaceful. And I'm in touch with the spiritual realm out there. It's great. And the woman said, man, that sounds just like a Christian testimony. So many Christians... That's not too dissimilar from what I was going to say <laughs> if she'd given me a chance. You should become a Christian because it's so satisfying to heart. It connects you to God. It provides rest in this world, peace, life here and eternally. I couldn't say that because she just found that. So what am I going to say? I said, you know, I'm a Christian because it's true. True. that's the difference don't become a Christian because it will encourage you help you feel good give you peace and rest and communion with God teenagers don't become a Christian because your parents are or because your schoolmates are because it's a thing to do. It'll make life easier and might help you find a nice spouse. Become a Christian because it is true. This is vastly different. What I'm saying is vastly different than sit down and pray about it or think about it and find out if you feel like it's right. I'm saying look at the evidence, examine it, it's true. I don't know if that sounds different. I'm on other sides of the planet for much of the culture here, even much of the Christian culture. We are talking about something, a, a faith. It is a faith, but it is a fact-based faith. Jesus lived or he didn't. He was crucified or He wasn't. He rose from the dead or He didn't. And if the didn't side of that is false, the whole thing's false. If the dead side is true, everything else in the world is false. And this alone is true. And that's the argument. Go to the text and let's prove it. Now. Are we going to be able to prove it beyond any shadow of a doubt at all? No, by no means. God has left enough room that if you don't want to be persuaded, you won't be. But the evidence is there. It's kind of like one of those, you ever seen one of those pictures that's like the 3D hologram sort of thing? They're, they're posters often, in it. looks If you look at them at first, they're like splotches of color and different geometric shapes. And as you look at him long enough, boom, suddenly it leaps out. There's a man's face right there. Or a saying or a picture of the world. I found that you kind of got to look at it cross-eyed a little bit and kind of look through it. A focal point behind it kind of seems to work. But once you've figured it out, you can't not see it anymore. It was always right there. But you have to look at it. And sometimes look at it and look at it and look at it. Convinced that something's there and I'll find it. It's really easy to walk and say, look at it, that's a strange picture, and just walk right on by. The evidence is right there. It's not going to force itself on you, but it's right there to be seen. The obvious call in this passage is to trust the evidence, to, to look for the evidence and then to trust it, to place your faith in Christ. The Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah who was killed and raised. The Bible's testimony all over the place. Believe, come to Him, you will find life. If you look closely, therefore many believed. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Look to produce life in you. But the interesting thing, is that most people weren't persuaded in Thessalonica. And today, most people aren't persuaded. It takes us to the second point. Only some believed, but in Berea, many believed. What's the difference? Not the facts, not even the method. Paul's doing the very same thing, in the very same kind of setting, to the very same sorts of people. The difference is in the receivers, the condition, the attitude of their hearts, of their insides before they receive the evidence. So the second point that's being urged upon us here in this passage is come to the Bible humble and eager to be informed. Because it does no good if the evidence is there, but you don't want to see it. You won't. Come to the Bible humble and and eager to be informed. That, that's the basic difference between these two groups. If you just read the Thessalonian story, it'd seem like, you know, they gave them a pretty fair shot. They gave them a couple of weeks. It's only when you see the contrast in verse 11 that you realize they were sitting there before the Bible, listening and not listening. The Bereans, they were listening. They eagerly, every day, went to the scriptures and said, I hear the argument, I'm looking for it now. I want to find it. For them, the, the information would have been just as shocking. The idea of a crucified Messiah for a Jew in Berea or for a Jew in Thessalonica is the same bit of shock, almost blasphemy. The idea of turning away from the, the culture that has been so rooted in one way of looking at things, it's the same for those two different groups of Jews. They're dealing with the same realities, the difference is that one group has a higher allegiance than their culture, than their preconceived notions, their higher allegiance is to the truth of God. And they say, if you can show me that's the truth of God in his Bible, I will believe it even if it forces me to change everything. I want the truth of God. That's the, that's the deal in this passage to want the truth of God and to come looking for it. It's what it's urging upon us. And a big part of me wants to just tell you what I just said there. Come to the Bible, humble and eager, and leave it at that. I'm going to say that. I I did say that. I am going to say that because it's what this is urging upon us, but there's more I'm going to say later. But I am going to say, come to the Bible, humble and eager, Seeking to be informed by it. If you're here this morning and you haven't done this, if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, don't do that. That's odd. Don't do that. Come to the Bible, humble and eager, and say, where is it? If you come saying, God, where is it? I want to know, even if it forces me to change everything. You'll find it. Because it's there. If you come saying, you know, I've already decided what the truth is, let me find that. That won't work. How do you feel when people come to you asking you for your opinion, having already decided what the answer is? Insulted. Why, why, why are you wasting my time? You already know what you're going to do. Just go do it. Don't bother me. We can't approach God like that either. Come to the Bible. Humble. Look for him there. It's truth. He'll speak to you. but christians we need to face this too it is entirely possible that we christians can sit in front of the bible with it open reading it every day but never actually humble and open to it ourselves happens all the time in christian circles in issues theological and otherwise and in just the daily living of life think about Theological issues. Let me just pick one for kicks. I'll make it a socially controversial one What should the role of women in the church and in the family be what should it be? Should they work outside the home? Should you stay in the home always and if you can work outside the home when should you work outside the home? And what should you do and what could be the leadership roles that women could assume in the church start that conversation in the church among Christians and regardless of where you come down on all those questions I promise you that a vast portion of that conversation will be bathed in 20th and 21st century Western thinking and have nothing to do with humble examination of the Bible that's the truth move on to any other subject not the ones that you find that the Bible agrees with you on, the ones that you find the Bible disagrees with you on. Move on to those subjects. It's true in your heart too. Mark Twain Twain famously said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that give me trouble, it's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that give me trouble. He was no friend of Christianity. But for many Christians, it's the very same thing. I love the Bible. Except that part. We do that. We Christians, the church, does that on on theological issues, on social issues. But beyond that, here's the one that's more difficult for me, we do that in the daily living of life. How we are supposed to look at life, our willingness to follow the scriptures and take our authority from them. Here's an example for me. This last week, I'm working on this sermon, and it's not coming together very well. And I'm struggling with it. Well, in the meantime, I was out late several nights and didn't get a lot of sleep, and I'm kind of tired, and I'm dealing with some interesting electricity issues in my house and kind of stressed about that a little bit. And you've had those kind of weeks. Maybe this was that kind of week for you. All that's going on in my life. And Friday morning, I read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. Let's listen to this. This is what the passage says, "...so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal." I memorized that passage in college. Read it on Friday morning. Came off to church here and had a stressed out day of fighting with this sermon and being perplexed about what's going on in the rest of my life. And, and then Saturday morning I realized that I wasn't at all remotely thinking like 2 Corinthians urges me to. It's not that I had said 2 Corinthians 4, That's false. I'd open up the Bible. I'd read it. As I said, I'd actually previously memorized it, so it was pretty easy to read it. It came quickly to me. And then I closed the Bible and pretended that it didn't exist. Light and momentary afflictions, achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, looking not at the things seen but the things unseen. Sure, okay, let's go look at the things that are seen and be extremely stressed by these light momentary afflictions, totally forgetting what they're doing in my life by the grace of God. That's how I lived. Friday, part of Saturday, humble and open before the Word, saying, God, teach me how to interpret my circumstances. No. As I say, not rejecting it, just not even thinking about it. We need to become much more Berean and much less Thessalonian. You see, I was Thessalonian-ish there. Yeah, I agree with the Bible. Let's see what it has to do with this. A Berean would say, there's what the Scripture says. Is it or is it not true? Yes, then my life must conform to it. And I'm not going to let it get away from me and become some irrelevancy that I've memorized but doesn't touch down here in my existence. We need that. You need it. I need it. We as a body need it. But it is so difficult to achieve it because here's where I I kind of realized this. As I realized on Saturday that what I was doing, how I was living, I'm, I'm saying, oh, God. Your word says this. I'm living like this. Help me. That's the key phrase. Help me. Do something in my heart to change me. And then I realize I can't just tell you, come to the Bible humble and open, eager to be informed, because it's not in your heart. It's not in my heart. I can't just tell you, be humble, because you're not. I'm not. I can't just tell you, be open to an authority higher than your own, because you're not, and I'm not. We're people. We think we're in charge. We do. And my prayer revealed that to me. I'm I'm thinking, oh, God, help me, because I'm unable to do this. God, give me a Berean heart. Change me. Give me a mind that cares about what the Bible says and will obey it, will submit to it and not set it aside and go live like I want to. You need that. And that too is a gift of grace from God. He sends forth His Word. He causes it to run. He melts opposition. He gives his statutes and his rules. He births by the word. So, what do you do with that? You say, God, in your word you speak. God, I'm more Thessalonian ish than I want to be. Make me a Berean. Make me humble and eager, primarily committed to Your truth, not my ways. Reorient my worship. Come to God. You say, God, help me. Create in me a humble heart, open before Your Word. God has spoken. We must... Approach his word humbly, openly, eager to learn. And if you do that, you'll find life. May God do that work in your heart. Ask him for it. Let me pray. Father, I know far more of your word than I listen to. And most of us here could say the same thing. We know far more of the truth of the gospel than we apply. We're more eager to obey the culture, to feed our own desires, than to know what you say and follow it. Father, would you do a work in my heart in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here that we would be a people shaped by, informed by, and conformed to your word. And Father, for those here who aren't in your family yet, I don't know who they are, Lord, but would you call them to yourself? Would you give them hearts that yearn to know the truth about your plan of salvation? and will follow it wherever it is. Give them that kind of heart, Lord, and then show yourself to them in your Bible. This is what we ask of you this morning, Lord. Would you do it, please? Would you build this church on firm commitment to the Scriptures, your word of truth to us? Give us that grace, I pray, Lord. For Christ's glory. Amen.